Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen and good morning and welcome back to the summer in the Psalms. Are you glad that the battle belongs to the Lord? Yeah. We couldn't win it, could we? No, we'd be in trouble. But praise God, the Lord has won the battle. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 34, Psalm chapter 34, and we're going to take a look at the last half of this psalm, verses 11 through 22. This psalm, I failed to mention last week, is designed like an acrostic. Um, The Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and so on, forms the beginning of each line of the psalm, all right? And so there are a couple of exceptions, but it was designed for the Hebrew listener, and hopefully we're going to get that worked out shortly. I apologize for that ring back. It was designed for the Hebrew listener to um, take in the psalm, to, to memorize the psalm. And last week, in the first 11 verses, first 10 verses, uh, we saw David praising the Lord for delivering him when he was on the run from Saul, and he was identified and trapped in enemy territory. He was in the Philistine enemy territory of Gath. And, and David is delivered by God, and he invites us at the beginning of the psalm into the praise of the Lord who delivers. And then he tells us of the joy of his deliverance. Then as we saw at the end of last week's sermon, he invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that, that famous verse, verse 8 of chapter 34, not to just know about the Lord, right? But to have a sort of knowledge that comes through a believing that is analogous to tasting. To stop tasting of the world and of our own sense of self-sufficiency, and instead to taste of the Lord and find that He is true good. Then and only then, verse 10, will we lack no good thing. And as we're going to see this morning, this is not a promise of a pain-free life, but of the goodness of God's presence in all situations. So after David tells us, to taste and see that the Lord is good. He now turns to teaching us how to keep on tasting even in the middle of trials. So we're going to hear the word of the Lord together starting in verse 11 of Psalm 34. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The first thing I want us to see this morning, if we want to know the nearness of God, we need to learn the fear of the Lord. Last week, I talked about biting into that Frankie's filet. Some of you texted me about that later. 
and you were you were not happy about that illustration because you wanted a Frankie's filet, and the sermon kept going. I, I apologize. And somebody else texted me and said, you know, um, the good thing about Jesus is you don't just stop with one bite, right? You you taste and see that he's good, and then you keep on partaking. You keep on tasting and seeing that Jesus is good. And and that's really what the continuation of the psalm is about. It's it's not just, oh, yeah, the Lord's good. I believed on him one time way back there uh, when I was a kid or when I was a teenager. But it's to cultivate this ongoing tasting of the goodness of God. And the way we do that is by cultivating the fear of the Lord. In verse 11, David assumes the posture of an author like the author of Proverbs. He assumes the posture of a parent instructing his children. And as David has matured in the faith, so also he wants us, his children, to mature in the faith. So he commands us to to listen up. The word means to listen attentively. You ever had to do that with your kids? You ever found that listen is not enough? It's listen up, hey, yo, pay attention. I got something important to say. No, nobody has had that experience. That's that's awesome because I had that experience a lot with my with my little ones, but that's what he's saying. Pay attention. We we've got to be attentive to what he's going to say. And the reason we need to be attentive is because he's not just teaching us about the importance of first tasting of the Lord's goodness, but of this ongoing fear of the Lord, of resting all our hope on Him and our identity upon Him. Then in verse 12, after asking us to pay attention, David asks an attention-grabbing question. This is a great strategy, right? Pay attention, and then I'm going to ask you an attention-grabbing question. And I'm going to give you the Daniel James Palmer version of this question, all right? I call it the DJPV. Here's the DJPV of verse 12. Who wants to delight in life? Who wants to have joy in life? Live a long time and ultimately see good. Anybody not want that? Who wants to have joy in life, live a long time, and see good? Anybody that doesn't want that, raise your hand. Right? I didn't think so, right? So, so David's like, all right. I, got, I told you to pay attention. I asked you a question. That everybody's like, of course that's what I want. And if that's what we desire, if we desire joy in life, delighting in life, we've got to learn the fear of the Lord. It's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? We, we think we just feed our fleshly pleasures and then we'll have joy, but actually that ends in, in misery. And what we learn in verses 13 and 14 is that the fear of the Lord is not found in sinking our teeth into the foolishness of this world, but rather in an ongoing pursuit of the Lord and His holiness. In verse 13, David commands us to continually keep, that is to guard our tongue from evil. Did you know that our words can get us into all kinds of trouble? The the Psalms warn us repeatedly about this, about lies and threats and flattery and boasting and scoffing, among other things. And in verse 13, David specifically mentions deceitful speech, treacherous speech, or cunning speech. This could be speech that even is technically accurate, but which is intended nevertheless to conceal or to mislead someone. 
And when I think about misleading speech, I, I think about sins of my own past. But when I think about it in, in the terms of the church overall, I think about a period of time in our convention of churches. We, we partner with the Great Commission Convention of Churches or the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I think about a period of time in our convention that ranged from about the late 60s to about the mid-90s that a lot of people don't even know about, actually even into the early 2000s, a period of time where, where there were men who would get in the pulpit and they would preach and you would think, well, that was pretty good. They told a nice story. They had a good illustration. And they think Jesus is pretty important. But sadly, many of those men were trained in seminaries that denied the virgin birth of Jesus. They denied that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And if you were to ask them, were Adam and Eve the first created human beings? They would say no. They would affirm macroevolutionary theory of the development of human beings. And they employed in the pulpit something I like to call doublespeak. They, they would preach, and, and for the one who was orthodox, they would think, oh, they believe what I believe. But if you were to actually go interview them, you would find out they didn't believe much at all of what you believe. And that led to something in the Southern Baptist Convention called the conservative resurgence. A resurgence of affirmation that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is the perfect, holy, inspired Word of God, and we stand on it, so help us God. Do we believe that this morning? All right, so this conservative resurgence led to a rewriting of the statement of faith of the Southern Baptist Convention called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It was updated to make sure that there wasn't wiggle room in the convention to interpret the Bible contrary to what the Bible has us to believe. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that uh, at North Roanoke, we're going to be a church that is riveted to God's Word unapologetically. We're not going to have double speak from the pulpit. Do I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Yes, because he had to be sinless. And why did he have to be sinless? Because he came to be perfection in my place and in place of all those who call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. We've got to have integrity in our speech about who Jesus is and what he's done. And we need to not run away in a society that is begging us to run away from the clear truth of Scripture. We cannot run away from it. God has spoken definitively, for example, on human sexuality. One man and one woman for life is God's design for the use of human sexuality. All other uses of human sexuality are a violation of God's design for humanity. Full stop, period, end of sentence. It doesn't matter how you feel, what you think, how you try to fabricate it, how do you try to rip a text out of context and make it say what you wanted to say. We cannot deceive ourselves or the world. we got to stand on the Word of God. we got to speak truthfully. And if you don't see that fight coming to the church, you're blind. It's coming to the workplace. It's coming to the church. And we are going to stand on the Word of God. We're not going to use doublespeak. We're going to speak clearly. Now, does God love people who are trapped in sexual sin, whether it's adultery or pornography or any other sin? Absolutely. Can they be freed from that through faith in Christ? Absolutely. But if you don't hold up God's standard, then you're cheapening the gospel and you're not giving anyone an opportunity to be delivered from the sin that so easily entangles them. All right. Uh, another Example of deception I think of is just politics, right? 
I mean, I can't stand it when they call a tax cut government spending. As if it was the government's money. Government didn't earn that money. You earned that money, right? Well, it's going to cost the, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be too costly to have a tax cut. Well, hold on. Costly to who? I got to buy some eggs. You know how much eggs cost, right? We, get, we need to have integrity in our speech. Speech characterizes so much of our lives, and, and every word of what we say matters. It, it doesn't take long to learn that the playground saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a pile of garbage. It, it's just wishful thinking. I can still remember words spoken to me that hurt years ago. Our speech can be used for great good or it can be used to cause great pain. It can be used to exalt ourselves or to exalt the Savior. Proverbs 13.3 says, He who guards his mouth protects his life, but the one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. Moses, of all people, missed out on the promised land in part because of his angry speech. Even Job Darken counsel by words without knowledge. The fear of the Lord or the lack thereof is shown in our speech. We're most tempted to veer off course into evil speech when we fear for ourselves more than we fear the Lord. When we fear Bible-driven changes more than we long for the Lord to be known and magnified. In our flesh, we are quick to speak and slow to listen, but the fear of the Lord leads us to be quick to listen, and slow to speak. When we are mistreated or misrepresented or abandoned, our fleshly response is to retaliate with our tongues. Is it not? But David gives us a different path in verse 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Rather than lash out or seek refuge in deception or gossip. We do good. We bless. We serve. We share. We love. The only possible way we can do this is the fear of the Lord. It is to fear the Lord more than we fear missing out, losing our job, losing our credibility, or losing a friend. To fear the Lord, we must turn from evil and do good. And then we seek peace and chase after it. Of course, when your enemy is, is a Saul or a Judas or a Pilate or the entrenched Jewish leadership that opposed Paul, you can't always get to peace. It's not always possible, which is why Paul writes in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he adds this in Romans twelve nineteen, beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, close your mouth, leave it in God's hands. Close your mouth, leave it in God's hands. This is challenging because instinctively we want to protect and defend ourselves. In, in James 1.26, James says, The one who considers himself religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and his religion is worthless. Then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, which is it, James? Am I not religious if I don't tame my tongue, or can no one tame their tongue? And his answer would be, well, no one can tame the tongue without what? The fear of the Lord. 
To tame the tongue, we have to truly fear God. The only way to walk in truth and tame the tongue and do good and pursue peace is to fear God. But when we are faced like David with attacks that seem insurmountable, and when we like David and even more so like Jesus are faced with people and ultimately with powers that are set against us and which threaten to undo us and overtake us, How do we persist in the fear of the Lord? How do we keep on doing that when it gets hard and we want to say something? And we want to use our tongues like a sword to cut somebody up. What do do we do? Look at verses 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So what do we do? The second thing we do is we believe if we're going to cultivate the nearness of God in our life, we've got to fear Him. And when it gets hard to fear Him and costly to fear Him, we've got to believe that the nearness of the Lord and His deliverance are more desirable than immediate vindication. To be vindicated on the last day is better than to be vindicated right now. I'd rather stand before God and be vindicated than stand before man and be vindicated. If man thinks ill of me or wrong of me or misappropriates me, but God knows the truth, I'm going to stand before God one day and it's going to be all right. And in the meantime, the nearness of God is my strength. Here, David reminds us, verse 15, the righteous, those who fear the Lord, those who've tasted of the Lord's goodness and now pursue His holiness in a a hostile world, those people will not have a trouble-free life, but they will have the presence of God. You may not have a trouble-free life. In fact, if you belong to Jesus, you you won't have a trouble-free life. Jesus promises that in John 16. But you will have the presence of God. In the middle of danger and betrayal and distress and demonic attack and disappointment or persecution, the righteous have a direct line to the Lord of the universe. Did you, did you wake up this morning remembering that? Like, I have a direct line to the living Lord of the universe, the one who made everything, knows me, loves me. He's not blind to me. Do you see that at verse 15? His eyes are toward the righteous. He sees us. He's not blind to to what you face in your life for following Him, even when it seems nothing improves. Verse 15, His ears are attuned to our cry. Aren't you glad to know that what gets the ear of God is the cry of His people? Man, I, I think about my wife when our kids were young. I don't know if she slept for like, 10 years. There's always something like I'm just conked out in the bed, just I'm good, man. And then where's Stacy? Like I wake up, like where's oh, well, Elizabeth needed something. How'd you know she needed something? Well, her ears were attuned to the cries of my daughter and then my son. I mean, she was just on it, and I was on sleeping mode, right? But this is our God. 
he hears the cries of his people. He's attentive to their, their cries. He takes our prayers seriously. He sees and he hears and he, he knows. And for right now, in this present life, it often seems that the forces of darkness and those held under the sway of the forces of darkness only grow in their prominence and in their power and in their popularity. They're growing bolder, it seems, by the day, but they are no match for the Almighty, verse 16, who is against them. While the righteous know the Lord's presence in goodness, His face or His presence is set against those, verse 16, who do evil. They may be ignorant of that fact now, but one day, literally, He will blot out their names forever. There will be no memory of them on the earth. One day soon, when we stand before our King, when He returns, only those whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life will remain to dwell with Him on a renewed earth that is full of His glory. Being righteous rather than wicked is a matter of eternal importance. And from this day until that day, when the Lord returns, the Lord doesn't just see and hear the righteous. Look at verse 17. When He hears us, what does He do? He delivers us out of all our troubles. Troubles like up in verse 6 is the word for being trapped. Some of you feel trapped this morning by the world. The promise of Scripture is that The Lord will deliver those who fear Him and look to Him. And we know that deliverance from troubles ultimately comes through the the resurrection, right? How is Jesus delivered from the afflictions that He faced on our behalf? He's delivered in the resurrection. How are the the martyrs down through the centuries delivered from their troubles? They're, They're delivered into the presence of their Savior who will raise them up on the last day. Jesus has been vindicated by being raised from the dead. Christ is risen. Why are we here this morning? Because God has proven that He will deliver the righteous from their troubles, and Jesus is the first fruits of that promise. He was ultimately righteous in our place, and He has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He is coming again, and you can stake your life on these truths. Jesus has been vindicated, and so too will all who trust in Him. Resurrection is the ultimate deliverance from trouble. On the other hand, there are times, like in David's case, when the Lord delivers us from immediate difficulty in this life relatively quickly. And I'm here to announce to you this morning, if if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not looked to the one who ran the race in your place, that, that if you will cry out to the Lord from the, the trapping of death, sin, hell, and the grave, if you will cry out to the Lord, He will deliver you. He will deliver you immediately and permanently. He will save you and raise you up on the last day. But you know, sometimes God delivers us from, from lesser troubles as well, but still significant troubles. Uh, Last week, we announced that one of our young men is headed to a a country where the gospel is is not popular, and he will be at heightened risk for following Jesus and proclaiming Jesus there. But I'm here to tell you, he's not going to face those risks alone. Aren't you glad to know that? 
he doesn't go alone. Emmanuel will be with him. God with us will be present with him every step of the way. I don't know if he wants to be called Superman or not. We might just go with J-O, but I'm so excited for him to come back to us and for us to hear what God does through him. When, when I was at Southeastern, Southeastern Seminary, studying pastoral ministry, I met a Christian missionary living, who had been living uh, in a country where it is very dangerous to be a Christian. In fact, it's illegal to be a Christian there. You say, well, how did he get to go into the country? Well, he went there as a consultant, an expert in helping parents of children with special needs. You see, his own son faced significant challenges related to autism, as did the son of a very high-ranking official in the education administration of this country. So he was, he was brought to the country as a consultant, despite his illegal status as a Christian, with the government knowing full well that he was a Christian. And one day, as he and his son were touring the country, becoming affiliated with the country, he and his son approached the marketplace of a, a rural village, and his son drifted aimlessly ahead of his father into the marketplace. And as he did, the, the people suddenly rushed upon him, shouting and crowding him in, into the center of the marketplace until he was no longer visible to his father. His father felt certain that his son was in danger, that perhaps they were even going to kill his son. And he cried out to the Lord, even as he was running into the crowd and trying to work his way in to get to his son. And suddenly he saw his, his young child lifted up to the sky and then up onto the shoulders of the elders of the village. And everyone was smiling and crying and shouting and excited. You see, as it turns out, their tribal religion included a, a promise that one day the shining one would come. And that the one with the shining one would be able to tell them how to have everlasting life. They thought this little boy who was severely autistic was the shining one. And their father was able to introduce them to the son of the father whose radiant splendor is beyond compare. He went into a dangerous situation. He went into a country where he wasn't even allowed to be. God provided the platform and then he used the very son that gave him an expertise in special needs care to be the introduction to give the gospel to a people who had never heard of the name of Jesus. That's our God. In a moment, he took trouble and turned it into triumph. He took a problem and turned it into an, an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And I'm here to tell you that our God still delivers in the present. Now, some of you this morning might be thinking, what opposition? What adversity? Life is great. My life is wonderful. Well, number one, congratulations. Number two, don't count on it lasting very long, because as a pastor, here's what I've discovered. You're either about to go into a problem, you're in a problem, or you're just now coming out of a problem. 
That's, that's life. And, and number three, if you really don't have any problems, I got a question. Are you actually engaged in gospel ministry? If you have a trouble-free life, do you actually care about the gospel? Because if you care about the gospel, you're going to have some problems. If you care about the gospel, you will face problems because you're going to be trying to raise that little rug rat to love Jesus, and there's going to be the world, flesh, and the devil attacking you every day in your home. You're going to go into, you're going to go into your colleagues and your coworkers on the shop floor, and they're going to be dropping words that we don't want to hear, and you're going to have to figure out how to respond in that context. Are you just going to go along and keep your head down and, and say what they say to fit in, or are you going to be a light shining in the darkness? If you have a trouble-free life, are you really engaged in gospel ministry? Because the Lord promises us, for those who know Him, there will be trouble in this world. And praise God, we know that the Lord delivers those who cry out to Him. Even if the immediate trouble doesn't disappear, look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. This refers to those who are psychologically and emotionally vulnerable. Brokenhearted literally means shattered into pieces. Have you ever felt that your heart has been shattered into pieces? The Lord is near to those who who are brokenhearted. I'm here to tell you as your pastor, I could not do what God has called me to do if this verse were not true. There are days that my heart is shattered by the weight of ministry, and I'm here to tell you that's true for a pastor, and it's true for every other Christian. You can't go on. You can't continue without knowing the nearness of God, because the ultimate good is God. And what we need more than an easy life is the nearness of God. And the Lord knows that. He knows that in this life that those who fear Him, those who walk faithfully for Him in this world, they will often be brokenhearted. They will often be crushed in spirit. Does Jesus not say in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are reviled and lied about for His name just as He was treated in following the Father. And yet, what does Jesus call us? He calls us blessed because the greatest good is not good stuff. The greatest good is God. Those who face hard things, even depression and mental anguish and ridicule for the sake of the Lord, they get the Lord. And the answer we seek to the questions that naturally arise when we seemingly get nothing but trouble for putting the Lord ahead of comfort and ease and acceptance of the world those fears melt in the presence of a Savior. We get God. We get to live in a happy relationship with the living Lord of the universe. And this is greater than any other good that we might have in this world. Whatever tough question you're facing, whatever trouble you're facing, the nearness of God is the answer you seek. These are the righteous those who long for the Lord's presence and favor, even when it is emotionally difficult, even when it costs us greatly. Now, if we're honest, none of us has perfectly feared the Lord and guarded our mouth and our tongue at all times, and none of us has always treasured the Lord's nearness in a time of adversity. 
And what's interesting about the Psalms is back in Psalm 14, verse 3, David tells us there's no one who does good, not even one. But then in the verses we just read, he writes about the righteous in the plural, the many righteous. So I don't know about you, but when I read the Psalms and I read David, sometimes I'm like, David, well, which is it? Is nobody righteous or are there a bunch of righteous? Because it, it doesn't make sense. It don't make no sense. You just said, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then Paul quotes it over in Romans to tell us that we all stand guilty before a holy God unless we have Jesus. And yet, right here, you told, told me about all these righteous people. So where do all these righteous people come from? Because I know that I haven't guarded my mouth perfectly. I know I haven't always cultivated and, and desired the Lord's presence in times of trouble. Anybody else feel that this morning? Okay. I was like, I'm the only one. Let's, let's keep reading. I think David does something really cool in verses 19 through 22. Remember, the word righteous has been plural, but it's about to be singular. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous one will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Where do all these righteous come from? They come from the righteous one. It's not by their perfection. It's by the one who was perfect in their place. So the last point this morning is this. We've got to remember there is no condemnation for those who take refuge in the Lord. And how do we take refuge in the Lord? By trusting in the righteous one that he promised to send for us. I love verse 19. Suddenly, the word righteous becomes singular. Now, now we could see this as an incidental shift like this is a generic righteous person that applies to, to all the plural righteous ones above. And there's a sense in which that is right. That, that God does teach us through our afflictions. That he, he chastens those that he loves. That he teaches us to fear him through trials. And verse 20 assures us that no matter how difficult the challenge is that we face, the, never, the Lord never loses control. Whatever you're facing, God hasn't lost control. Not even one of his bones will be broken. And yet, there's another sense where we're like, I know a lot of righteous people. I know a lot of people who love Jesus who've had some broken bones. Anybody in here ever had a broken bone that loves Jesus? Okay, so, so who is David talking about? You see, there's something even more profound that's happening here. Back in Exodus, do you remember the story of Exodus and the delivery of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? Remember the, the story of Passover when the Lord spared the firstborn sons of Israel, but the firstborn sons of Egypt were, were killed? Do you, you remember they were supposed to eat of a lamb? They were supposed to come into their home and, and eat of a lamb. And Exodus twelve forty six says, The lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And listen to this. You shall not break any of its bones. Interesting. And now we have a singular righteous man, verse 19, who will face many afflictions, literally evils, but none of his bones will be broken. Does that sound familiar? 
Flash forward to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, the account of the crucifixion. When the soldiers come to Jesus, what happens? They came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. Therefore, they did not break his legs. And what does John 19.36 say? These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. What Scripture? Psalm 34.20. No, not one of his bones will be broken. So you say, well, how do you know this is about Jesus? Because John told me so. The Scripture is a prophecy of the Passover lamb who would come. The Scripture is the prophecy of the firstborn son of Israel who would die so all the sons of man could have an opportunity to live through his sacrifice. You see, beloved... The way to be righteous is by faith in the righteous one. The way to cultivate the fear of the Lord and guard your tongue is not by you trying to do it in your own strength, in your own power, but it is first humbly submitting yourself to the lordship of the living king of the universe. When the Lord passed over the firstborn sons of Israel and delivered them from slavery in Egypt, he was paving the way for us to understand that he would give us his son to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And verses 21 and 22 are the invitation this morning. They are the opportunity to see our great need for the righteous one who bore our adversity, our evil, so that we don't have to. Look at verse 21. It says, literally, evil will slay the wicked. In other words, the wicked that the wicked do will be their end. It will be their undoing. The greatest evil of all is then highlighted in the second line of verse 21. What is the greatest evil of all? It is hating the righteous, which again is singular. The greatest sin in all the world is unbelief in the Son of God. The sin that can't be forgiven is to reject and to hate the righteous one. Those who refuse Jesus, those who think they can be good enough on their own, they will face the guilt and condemnation of their evil because they failed to turn to the one who is truly righteous. But look at verse 22. Those who will look to Jesus with love and hope and a desire to serve Him, these are the ones who are redeemed. They are paid for. They are bought. Ah, the beautiful word redemption. Those who have been redeemed at the cost of the blood of Jesus. Now we see how there are many righteous. There are many righteous because the righteous one shed his blood to pay the price for their sin. They are righteous not because their mouths have been perfect, but because of Jesus who was perfect in their place. Indeed, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 Jesus redeems sinners and makes us his servants. He pays the price of our sin with his death and in his resurrection guarantees that all all that look to him for refuge will not be condemned. Do you see that at the end of verse 22? Those who look to this righteous one will not be condemned. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation 
no guilt, no punishment, no penalty remaining to be rendered for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want you to know the perfection that God requires of you is not something you can achieve or attain. It can only be received. The only way that you can go from being unrighteous to righteous is by coming to the one who is truly righteous. How was the thief on the cross saved? By trusting in the one hanging next to him to take his sin. The greatest sin, the sin that will not be forgiven, is the sin of unbelief in the righteous Son of God. This morning... If you don't know King Jesus, I want to urge you to trust Him. He paid the unimaginable cost with His life for our sin, and now He freely offers salvation to all who will trust in Him. Do you see that at the end of verse 22? None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. None of those. Have you taken refuge in the Lord? Would you pray with me? As our deacons make preparations for the Lord's Supper, would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, you would help us to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord, that our hope and desperation would be for him and his nearness and his presence. And God, that in every trial and every storm, we would know the nearness of God because the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.